This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. With the ever-increasing number of makes and models of automobiles, it is now impossible to stock all the parts you need in a traditional chain storefront. You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. One reason to repair and maintain your cars is to save money that you can then use for other things, you know, like mortgage or food. Why would you choose to spend 30%, 50%, 100% more for the exact same auto parts at a chain store or a new car dealership? At rockauto.com, you will save money. rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules to brake parts to tail lamps motor oil, even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or your daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Jerry, G-E-R-R-Y, in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so they know that we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com. What you doing? Trying on glasses with Zenny's 3D Virtual Try-On. Wait, are those the actual prices? I say get all of them. Seriously, why not, right? Oh, now I want new glasses. Zenny.com. Quality prescription glasses starting at six ninety-five. Who are you texting? My therapist. You text with your therapist? Text, video chat, call? Yep, that sounds too easy. How did you find her? I just went to betterhelp.com slash save. She's a licensed therapist and it's all online. I connect when it's convenient for me and don't waste time driving anywhere. Plus, it's affordable. I wonder if I should try it. It's great to talk to someone in confidence. She's helped me sort out quite a few things. And right now you save 10% off the first month when you go through betterhelp.com slash save. Betterhelp.com slash save. Got it. All right, it's a special edition of the Callahan Podcast, a weekend edition. Uh, I uh, talked to author Casey Sherman about his new book, Hunting Whitey. It's a story of uh, the final days of the capture and the, the killing of Whitey Bulger. And it's excellent. I do not have just any old author on. I try not to. I read the book, and if I like it, I want him on. And I read this book, and I really liked it. And I finished it last night, and I called up Casey, and uh, we hooked up today, and I got I got all the answers. I got lots of questions in case he gave me all the answers. It's good. In this day of uh, true crime stories, true crime podcasts, I feel like this is kind of a true crime podcast. This is uh, Casey Sherman, the author of Hunting Whitey and everything you need to know about the capture and killing of Whitey Bulger. This is the Jerry Callahan Podcast. All right, joining us uh, now is our old friend Casey Sherman, author Casey Sherman, author of uh, all kinds of books, all kinds of good uh, nonfiction books, beginning, I believe, with the story of your aunt who was murdered by the Boston Strangler. Yeah, that was almost 20 years ago now that the book came out. So this is my 13th book. Can you imagine that, Jerry? 
Wow, thirteenth! I can't, I can't, I can't imagine it because it looks like a lot of work, man. A lot of work and a lot uh, of fun too. Well, yeah, I don't know about the fun part, uh, <laughs> but uh, you got it done. And I have to say, I mean, I've read most of your books. I'm looking at the list, and I've certainly, uh, you know, we all know about uh, Boston Strong, which was a better book than movie. The story, of, uh, and I agree about uh, with that. <laughs> I don't remember a superhero in the book. Uh, in the movie, you had the superhero in Mark Wahlberg, but uh, I guess that's what it took to get it done. And uh, The Finest Hours, an excellent book and a very good movie. Uh, the uh, 12, The Inside Story of Tom Brady's Fight for Redemption. Which we're He's, updating now uh, to come you? out in September. So we've we've got some really juicy stories to share, uh, you know, when the season uh, uh, comes about. This is with uh, the latest is Hunting Whitey, the inside story uh, of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss, which you did with uh, co-authored with Dave Wedge, former Herald reporter. And I have to say, I told you this last night. I just finished it. I'm a slow reader. You got it to me a, you know, a month ago. It took me a while, but it is excellent. It is an excellent read. And I have to give you credit because I have this um skepticism going into this when i get the book or when i read about heard about you working on this book uh you and dave wedge i had my doubts and it's the same thing with the uh with the brady book or with the boston strong i wonder if you can tell me anything i don't know i read a lot i follow the news closely i've read a bunch of books about whitey and the bulgers and boston crime uh, my you know my friend howie carr is the is the authority on this and i read all of his books and i'm thinking I know Casey's a good reporter and Wedge is a good reporter, but I'm not sure they'll be able to advance the story. Uh, do you have that same kind of skepticism going in? Oh, sure. And- you know, I mean, it's one of the reasons why we didn't jump in and write a Whitey Bulger book, because we didn't want to go over anybody else's, you know, material, whether it's Howie or, you know, uh, uh, Shelley Murphy. We were uh, kind of backing off of the Whitey Bulger story until he got murdered in 2018. And then we looked at each other and we said, well, what about the years that he was on the run? And what happened to him in prison? What was his life like then? So once we got our heads around that, that's the avenue we hope to take the readers in. And I know you do. You do a lot of work, a lot of interviews, a lot of digging. And you did, not only did you tell me things I didn't know, which uh, you know kept me interested throughout the book, but the uh, you saved the best for last. And I have to say this, that... Um, this is worth a book on its own. I mean, you get into the life on the run, which is good. His whole life with Catherine Gregg and uh, Santa Monica, you know, all the places he went before he hit out in Santa Monica, the capture, yep. which is excellent. But then you get to his life back in prison and his ultimate demise, which is gory. And it's almost, it reads, you know, like a novel. I know how it's going to end. I know he's going to get murdered. But you tell this story, and it, 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 it felt like I was reading about, you know, John Wilkes Booth or Lee Harvey Oswald, where you don't know that much. You say, sure. I, know about, I know about the guy who got murdered, but I didn't know that much about the murderer. And you introduce us to um, uh, Freddie Gee. How do you say his last name? Gius. Freddie Gius with a soft G. Freddie Gius, which, as you know, as an author, as a reporter, when you can bring people, introduce people to a new character, kind of an evil He's not pure evil. He's a family guy, but he's a mob guy and he's a hitman. He's a killer. And you get to meet Freddie Gius, Gius, and that you must have felt like this is something new. This is worthy of a book. Yeah. You know, when, when we uh, first got uh, access to Freddie Gius's daughter, Taylor, 
you know, she uh, introduced herself to us and we started to interview her over time to get a little bit about Freddie's background in Springfield, Massachusetts. And then suddenly Freddie is writing us letters uh, from solitary confinement at Misery Mountain. That's the place where he uh, murdered Whitey Bulger. And he's writing us in rubber tipped pencils because the guards won't give him anything sharp because they're afraid he'll jab himself in the neck or kill a guard. I mean, that's how close we got to the uh, to the real source of Whitey Bulger's murder in this book. And uh, obviously it's, I mean, we knew, we kind of knew the story. They beat him with a, a sock full of coins. Is that correct? It was a, it was a padlock and a sock. And there was some, uh, there were a lot of rumors that came out right after the murder that he'd been castrated, that his eyes were gouged out. None of that is true. Uh, but he was beaten so badly over the eyes that anybody that was looking into his cell from a, a distance would have would have believed that his eyes had been taken out. Uh, but he uh, he got what he deserved, at, you know, ultimately at, at the end of the day. And, um, you know, it's 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 uh, one of the uh, uh, FBI agents that we follow in the book, uh, Charlie G. and Turco, who carried that first leg in the uh, relay race to find Whitey Bulger. You know, when I when we discussed Bulger's murder, he said, you know, well, you live by the sword and then you die by the sword. And then he says, no, screw that. It makes Whitey Bulger seem valiant. Whitey right. Bulger was a slug. He was a killer of women and he got what he deserved. That That is true. And that's one thing that stays kind of consistent and and in not just in your book and every book, every story about him. I mean, the, the Robin Hood myth died years ago, although, sure. although you do revisit it with a priceless Mike Barnacle excerpt from a Barnacle <laughs> we column. <had> to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I highlighted that and laughed out loud about how, you know, Barnacle said, when, you know, when he ripped off the lottery, the lottery ticket, yeah. when he won the lottery, Barnacle said he'd probably donate to the church. God, what an embarrassment that is. Seeing it in print again just reminds you of what a fraud he was and what a joke the globe is. Uh, but there is a feeling throughout your book and every, I mean, we forget sometimes, but Whitey Bulger was pure evil, even in the end, even his attitude in court. I mean, he just was a a, a real sinister, dark human being until the end. Correct. I mean, there wasn't. Uh, yeah, no- until the end. But, you know, it's funny. You know, we, we really uh, followed Whitey Bulger in his line and winter phase of his life. So his body's breaking down, but right. he still, you know, believes that he could take anybody out in any any room. Yet, you know, we get to a place where he's in prison and inmates in the yard are trying to steal his sneakers because they think he's just some old feeble clown in a a wheelchair. But he, but he's a, he's an ornery bastard as a, as a prisoner, you know, getting in arguments with a prison nurse saying that, you know, her day of reckoning is coming, which ultimately led the, uh, the prison warden in Florida, the second prison that he was in to upgrade his health status and ship him over to misery mountain where he didn't last 12 hours. And Misery Mountains in uh, Hazleton, West Virginia. Hazleton, West Virginia. The, where, the worst you, place. You literally say that the warden threw him to the wolves. Do you think it was by design? Do you think someone somewhere said this scumbag killed, you know, at least 19 people, probably many, many more killed women, you know, ripped their teeth out. He was a pedophile. He was just the worst of the worst. Do you think a decision was made at some level? I mean, you don't say this explicitly, but. You leave leave us wondering, leave the readers wondering if somebody said, let's throw him to the wolves. Let's let uh, let's you know, let street justice or prison justice take its uh, take over here. You know, I mean, that that would be a great Hollywood ending to the story. But honestly, I think and Dave Wedge, my co-author, we think it was a happy accident 
that the warden in Florida was was very close friends, wink, wink, nod, nod, with the prison nurse. And once Bulger starts to threaten this woman, he's like, you're out of here. And I'm going to send you to the worst goddamn place on earth. So he didn't even care. I don't believe this. There's no evidence that we found that would back up a theory that this was a a decision made on high to send Bulger to uh, to Hazelton. However, you know that investigation is still ongoing. But you know we talked to guards that were in you know inside with Freddie Gius with Whitey Bulger, and uh, they didn't feel like there was a. a um, uh, you know, a conspiracy at, at a high level here. You know, Freddie Gius, it just so happened, he served time with uh, Freddie Weichel, uh, you know, a Braintree gangster who was set up for a murder that he didn't commit. Whitey Bulger put that guy in prison for 30 years. So uh, Freddie Gius had heard all these stories about what a scumbag Whitey Bulger was from Freddie Weichel. And sure enough, here comes Whitey Bulger, uh, who's in his same prison, served up on a, on a you know, a, a silver platter. And Gius is that old school gangster. And, you know, he's one he's a guy that he's an honorable killer if, if there ever was one. And uh, he just wanted to exact some type of retribution on behalf of one of his good friends. Yeah, you you point out here's where you here's what you guys did so well is you'd introduce us to a gangster and you do it, you know, completely you know, thoroughly. Tell us all about his family, his background, his record and how he you know, how he went from, you know, everyone goes bad at some point when they become gangsters. And I, I know I'm not alone. I know people love this. People love when they read about gangsters and they hear the whole story of where, how they evolved into this monster who was, you know, become a contract killer or become a, uh, you know, a lifer in prison, you know, bashing people with, with socks, with padlocks in them. Sure. And, and, and his story was great, but here's, Here's the feeling I got at the end that uh, that I loved is that Bulger, for most of you know my life and yours, got away with everything. Right? He got away with everything. He even even when they were closing in, even when they had the case made, and he was going to prison like like Flemmy and everyone else. He got tipped off. He got away. He was uh-huh. a fugitive for how long? Sixteen, 16 years. Yeah, sixteen years living on the on the ocean in California. I mean, not the greatest life, but he was free until his golden years. But when it all said and done, he paid a higher price than many of his cohorts. I mean, he got away with everything. He, he, he you know, killed them. But in the end, he's in prison and they're stealing his sneakers because he's in a wheelchair and they're abusing him. Hell, he got busted in prison for masturbating. Exactly. <laughs> and it was humiliating. And he had to like defend himself and say, no, I, I can't even do that anymore. I'm too old. And I'm saying right. this in a way is justice. I mean, this guy, he can handle prison. He's been in Alcatraz. He can certainly handle you know, himself in the prison yard when he was younger, but he can't handle this being sent to solitary confinement for masturbating. Yeah. yeah. It was no, I mean, they, they, they took his honor and dignity. Yes away along with his life. And, you know, what we learned when he first is convicted of uh, the 19 murders and he gets shipped to Arizona, uh, there's an attempt on his life there. He gets stabbed in the skull and, and almost uh, almost is killed. And he uh, strikes up a friendship with uh, one of the inmates there that we interviewed for the book. And now one of the great things about this book and the access we got is you're hearing really from Whitey Bulger from the grave, 70 letters that uh, that he wrote in his own hand that a lot of that information we put in the book. So you're really hearing from Whitey Bulger for the first time. And he tells this, you know, fellow prisoner, you know, he thought he was going to get it in prison, but when they give it to me, I hope they give it to me quick because I gave it quick. 
well, I wouldn't call two minutes, you know, a lifetime, but two minutes of being beat over the head and shoulders with a padlock and a sock. Bulger didn't even get out of his bunk. Bulger didn't even have breakfast that next morning. He got beat to death. But you point out that he was looking like like so many people had looked in his eyes before. Absolutely. Meeting which, is, which is great. You know, yeah. I mean, you think about De- Debbie Davis and Deborah Hussey and some of these, you know, so-called innocent victims of Bulger's reign of terror. You know, what, what, were, what were their last, you know, what was going through their mind when uh, Bulger was closing in on them? I hope he felt the same terror and fear that they did. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. It is disturbing, like in every book I've read about him and the gang, is how others like, you know, Monterano. Monterano did 12 years, I believe, for 20 murders. 12 years for 20 murders, correct. 12 years for 20 more. And and, and it's just, that's just disgusting. It's nauseating. and uh, That's disgusting. And it also pissed off Bulger. Bulger was so angry that, you know, Matarano, the tip of the spear, had gotten 12 years, and yet, yet here he was about to get life in prison, and he was more uh, disgusted about all the prison time Catherine Gregg was was about to serve. Right. There is a weird love story between Catherine and Whitey that is told throughout the book, you know, from Bulger and through these letters. Uh, Bulger was certainly somebody that hated women, but at the end of his uh you know, fugitive life. He really leaned on Catherine Gregg, who could have escaped at any time. Uh, but Catherine had always wanted to be the main squeeze, so to speak, in Whitey's life beyond T- Teresa Stanley, his common law wife, uh, right. the first woman he went on the run with. And here she is. Finally, she gets this guy on, you know, on her own. And then, uh, you know, Scott Gariola, the special agent from the FBI, just lures Bulger out of that apartment on that day and uh, nine years ago this month. It's a great, uh, you, 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 you guys did a great job of uh, capturing that, the whole process, the painstaking process of uh, moving in on him and luring him out of the apartment, which was just full of guns, loaded guns. And they lured him out and they nabbed him in the garage where he had to take a knee in a puddle of oil and take him in. Uh, Catherine Gregg, his his girlfriend that was on the run with him the whole time. She never talked, correct? She was. She never talked. No, we went through a lawyer, Kevin Reddington, to try to get her to talk, and uh, and she just she, she wouldn't talk. And I don't think she'll ever tell her tale. You know, she's that classic gangster mall who will always stick by her man. Uh, you know, one way or the other. But the FBI agents that we uh, investigate or interviewed rather for the for the book, they said keep a, keep an eye on her for the next couple of years. And anybody that was close to Whitey Bulger, because Whitey Bulger took off with about 30 million bucks and they were only able to find less than a million. So there are safety deposits out there somewhere with that Catherine Greg potentially knows where they are. And, and she's also in a halfway house now, is that correct? Well, she, no, she lives with uh, uh, Whitey Bulger's nephew, Billy so Bulger's she- son. So, speaking of uh, knowing where the 30 million are, uh, is, you guys had... Some exclusive interviews, including, I think, uh, the one with Billy Bulger, Whitey's contemptible, loathsome brother, who helped Whitey when Whitey was on the run, paid no price. He's still collecting a Mm -hmm. 200,000 plus per year pension. I mean, he's just a vile human being, in my opinion. But you got to sit down with him. Does he feel any guilt at all helping Whitey, this serial killer, 
Remain, no, we, we, we get a sense that he didn't really feel any remorse. You know, Dave uh, uh, conducted that interview with Billy and just knocked on his door. And one day Billy opened it. Now, Billy never opened his door for the FBI agents that were knocking on the door, you know, regularly throughout the uh, entire manhunt. But he allowed Dave in. They, they spoke for over an hour, all on the record. And, you know, Billy felt, I guess, he wanted to, to, to tell his version of growing up with Whitey Bulger. But, you know, we we uh, uh, juxtapose Billy's interview in the book with the FBI agents that say he should be in a, in a prison cell along with his brother. They have no, con- you know, contempt for this guy. There's no there's no question. I mean, it's it's disgusting. I think he's, you know, the, obviously was the president of the Senate and then ahead of UMass, you know, drawing this huge public check. And living in Southie, by the way, where his brother, you know, had this reign of terror for decades. I mean, he's surrounded by people whose lives were ruined, whose family members, you know, died of, of drug overdoses or were murdered right. uh, by Bulger's gang. And he feels no remorse. And in fact, at least in one occasion, you know, took a secret phone call uh, from from Whitey and, 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 and in, in an effort, an obvious effort to allow his brother to remain free. It, you know, I know he yeah, has. That, and that was the one occasion that the FBI uh, knew about. What they didn't know about was other uh, instances where Whitey Bulger would buy a car for cash and drive from Santa Monica, California, all the way to the Midwest, to Detroit, Michigan, to call his brother. And he would speak to Billy. And this is this is what Whitey Bulger had told, um, you know, his inmate best friend while he was in prison that they had almost near regular contact with each other. Catherine Gregg was certainly calling her uh, sister, Margaret McCusker, almost on a, on a regular interval. And Catherine Gregg, uh, when, he, when she left with Whitey, she left her two uh, poodles behind. And there's a weird uh, relationship between Catherine and her sister, Margaret, because Margaret had the two poodles euthanized. <laughs> Catherine <laughs> didn't, didn't know about it. So you can imagine what that was like, that first conversation they had about Jesus. that. They're killing, they're killing everything for crazy women, you know, whatever dogs. Uh, but I, 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 you certainly don't make the Bulger family seem sympathetic. You know, they were uh, visiting him in prison. They were visiting. They were in the court. His brother Jackie, another disgraced former hack. Yep. Um, they're now, or maybe they're not. They, they, they at one point sued. For two hundred million, because Whitey got killed in prison, is that still pending? That's still pending. You know, Hank Brennan, who uh, was co-counsel for Whitey Bulger in the criminal case, he's representing the family in that case. So we'll see where that goes. But it, again, you imagine, you know, the family, the gall of the Bulger family to sue the Federal Bureau of Prisons for two hundred million dollars <laughs> for Whitey Bulger's murder. If they get it, all that money should go directly to Bulger's victims. It's true. I mean, you're talking about a guy who killed, you know, at least 19, probably many, many more. He he was 89, 89 years old, 89. That's yeah. way too old, way too old. I mean, if he should have met his, his end, you know, decades earlier, they're lucky he's lasted. He's lucky he lasted as long as he did. I mean, do do the people in the FBI, you talked to lots of them, including, by the way, Andrew McCabe. Yes. You hear about that. Um do they did they feel silly like they thought initially was uh, obviously gone before 9-11. He could have gone anywhere in the world. After that, he was in Louisiana. He traveled a lot. But there he was in a pretty open place, you know, hiding in plain sight in Santa Monica. There had been a sighting of him in San Diego in a movie theater. Uh-huh. But they feel like they were they didn't they missed something and that he'd stayed on the land for so long. 
Yeah, I, I do feel that way. I think, you know, when we cover all the misfires as well, and right. we look at it as a kind of a relay race, you know, a few FBI agents took the uh, case early, you know, made some real, you know, grievous mistakes that allowed Bulger to slip through the noose. And here he is, uh, you know, living 0.8 miles from the San, Santa Monica Police Department. Dave and I were the only uh, journalists to ever get access inside uh, of Bulger's apartment, which was a real weird feeling. He was long gone, but the ghost of Bulger seemed to be still there. But what the you, FBI? You see where the gun? I mean, we knew we cut out the wall and put the guns. You could see, absolutely see it. I mean, it was all that? plastered over, but it, they didn't do a very good job, uh, you know, um, uh, remodeling the inside. And Bulger, you know, slept in the in the, in the back bedroom. They, Catherine and Whitey never shared a bedroom together because Bulger would wake up at night screaming because of all of these LSD experiments that he had participated in in not, the 1960s. Not because of the young woman whose teeth he ripped up. Because No, the, no, no, because of, correct. But I mean, you know, it, it is, you know, there there is something to say about, you know, turning a, a, a criminal into a kind of a super villain, you know, and I, and I do think that the MK Ultra program certainly must have paid, played a role in that. How do you take upwards to a thousand LSD hits without your mind being altered in some crazy way? And it just obviously made Bulger, you know, the real uh, uh, homicidal killer that he eventually became. Right. And um, I mean, the, the life on the lamb, at least in Santa Monica, was pretty uneventful. You would say that there wasn't maybe, maybe that's why he remained free because he was so careful and he didn't do much. And they didn't uh, they, they were very uh, under the radar. He was very careful. Uh, he was very careful. And I think uh, the only time that I think there was a threat threat on his life is when he was walking with Catherine, uh, you know, beyond the Santa Monica pier one night when they were almost, uh, uh stuck up for money from, a uh, you know, a robber with a knife, but Bulger, you know, was strapped everywhere he went, showed the guy his gun and the guy, uh, you know, ran away. And Bulger, uh, I love the fact that he's, he's a huge fan of Hollywood. So he recites these great lines from gangsters movies like the untouchables and bulger allegedly said to this guy you never bring a knife to a gunfight oh, now you yeah, can right. hear sean connery saying that same line in the untouchables you know bulger didn't have a uh, uh um an original thought in his head the um the story of how they got him uh, obviously you got you go into it extensively and it's very good very detailed but it was ba- basically co- comes down to this the fbi took out a tv commercial would you say that led to the yeah well the- I, I mean what happened was they uh i love the fact that bulger was a you know he had hatred toward women treated you know catherine like dirt and killed t- at least two women that we know of so here comes a female fbi agent named noreen gleason and she's looking around the boston fbi agent seeing people kind of down in the dumps and they they've lost their will to to go on and she says we're not going to get it done with this crew. I need to bring in some heavy hitters, some fugitive hunters from around the country. And we've been looking for the wrong person. We've been looking for 10 years for Whitey Bulger. We need to start looking for Catherine Gregg. And if we find her, we're going to find him. So, but they had those, you know, old grainy surveillance uh, photographs of Catherine Gregg, but then they, uh, they, a tipster let them know that Catherine Gregg had uh, numerous cosmetic surgeries, a boob job, rhinoplasty, you name it. She had it. So then they started to really canvas all of these uh, plastic surgery operations around the Boston area and finally found uh, her surgical practice. And that practice had these full close-up photographs 
of Catherine Gray. So they created their own public service announcement for the very first time in F the FBI's history that they'd done this. And they wanted the uh, American public to believe that Catherine was in fear for her life, you know, on the run with this killer of women. So they put together a commercial. They, they aired it in markets all around the country that they could afford, that they believed Whitey might be hiding out in. The one market they couldn't advertise in was L.A. because they couldn't afford it. But it was such an anomaly for the FBI to create its own ad that it became a news story unto itself. So CNN picked it up. The BBC picked it up. And all of a sudden, there's a, a woman in um, Iceland who was a former neighbor of Charlie and Carol Gasco, their aliases, and she leaves three um, messages on you know, the FBI's uh, voicemail, via email, and uh, another form saying, not only do I know where they are, I know who they are. And that's ultimately what led the FBI to Bulger. Did she get the $2 million? She did get the two million. And there's a great part in the book where Scott Gariola, he's a, an FBI agent out in L.A., a brilliant fugitive hunter. He's on vacation with his kids and he gets a buzz on on his cell phone, a text saying, you know, Bulger sighting Santa Monica. Give us a call back. He looks at his phone. He almost deletes it or says this is somebody, you know, I'm on vacation. He's like, mm -hmm. oh, what the hell? I'll I'll see what this is. So they reveal that it's a tipster in Iceland. And Bulger says, well, who took the tip? And it was a U.S. marshal that had joined the Bulger task force that eventually uh, talked to this tipster in Iceland. And Gariola goes, well, you know, I, I don't really like the U.S. marshals. I want to talk to her myself. So she get, he gets on the phone with her and they have a dialogue. And he says, how, how, you know, how much do you believe that this is Whitey Bulger and Catherine Gregg that we're looking for? And she goes, well, I'm not 100 percent sure it's them. I'm 200 percent sure. Right. She was great. And yeah. she kept, she was relentless and she deserves the money. And then they got, Gariola got the apartment manager, the manager of the apartment building to help by telling him that he could get the reward for yeah. Greg, right? Yeah. The 50 grand, the 50 grand for Greg was still available. So he said, Oh, I'll do that. So they set up a ruse where they told him the locker, his locker in the garage had been broken into and they broke the lock and made it look like someone had broken it. And they told Billy uh, Whitey, Asked Whitey to come on down and, you know, check it out because someone broke into his locker. Whitey was very paranoid and cautious, but he still went down the elevator by himself. And as he's walking to his locker, they nab him. They nab him. And, and you know, for the first time, Bulger actually uh, chronicles that event himself in his letter. We have a letter from Whitey Bulger where he describes his own arrest. And the second that he got down to uh, to the garage, he knew something was up. And he almost, uh, you know, he was afraid that the FBI was going to take him out at that at that very moment. Because he refused to kneel in a bottle of oil. They told him oil, to take correct. him. Oil, correct. You know, he, oil. <laughs> typical he whitey. Gonna, he said, you could shoot me, but I'm not kneeling down in oil. Or <laughs> That's right. And then, oil. you know, then, then a neighbor stumbles upon this whole scene. And she's been told for years that Charlie Gasco's got Alzheimer's. So oh, she man. sees this Alzheimer's patient surrounded by the FBI and she starts yelling at the FBI. So Scott Gariola, the agent, is thinking, oh, my God, did, did we just get the wrong guy? And Bulger chirps up, you know, I'm James bleeping Bulger. You know, she's effing crazy. Don't listen to her. You got the right guy. Yeah, not Whitey. James, Jimmy Bulger. That's yeah. you to show some respect and call him Jimmy. Did the uh, apartment manager get the 50 grand for Catherine Gregg? I don't know. And I think, you know, Scott Gariola, he was kind of, you know, he was, 
he, he was spitballing at the time. He had to make this arrest happen. I'm not sure this kid got a red cent. How strange was it? Well, I don't know if Dave did it or you did it sitting down with Andrew McCabe. Well, it was, it was, it was unusual. You know, I, I did the interview with, with Andrew, but you know, there was a big, uh, and this is obviously while the whole Trump thing was going on. And I actually met him on the Cape while he was there for an event. And we, you know, we really didn't get into uh, the Trump issues or any of the uh, stuff he was dealing with. I wanted to really focus solely on what Bulger's arrest meant uh, to the Bureau. And obviously it had uh, a rippling effect throughout all, uh, the entire Bureau, but just, just because it, it lifted the stain of corruption, at least right. on the Boston office. It is the most maddening thing in every Bulger story I've read, every book, uh, just like uh, uh, when uh, Donahue and uh, Bucky Barrett get taken out. Uh, do I have that right? Barrett yeah. was going to flip. Yep. Barrett, Barrett was going to flip. He was going to testify. The FBI tells Bulger indirectly, and they kill him. And it's and that was repeated over and over. Like anyone that was even a hint of like uh, Deborah uh, Deborah Hussey. Yep. Uh, was they were afraid she would talk. Kill her. That's how he handled everything. Just the potential that someone might rat on him. Meanwhile, he's ratting on everybody. And you're saying, can you imagine thinking if I go to the FBI, I'll be safe. I'll go to the FBI, tell them, you know, I'll whatever, run away, go witness. I'll be safe. You go to the FBI and it's signing your death warrant. Oh, exactly. It's, it's not corruption. You think of corruption of guys taking payoffs. That's one thing. They took payoffs, God knows, from Bulger and Flemmy. But setting up people who are trying to do the right thing is the most maddening part of the whole Bulger story, in my opinion. Well, that's why, you know, in my opinion, you know, John Connolly is he, he's serving life in prison in Florida. It's not enough. <laughs> it's not enough. I mean, you know, he, he should have been uh, given the death penalty uh, for for what he did. I, I think of him, though, and he's every day he's waking up in a Florida prison. I'm not sure if they got air conditioning, but he is uh, it, it, it's he's not he's not doing well. Put it that no, way. it's a long road to hoe for him. And, uh, you know, I hope he thinks about that every day, too. You know, and, and, and it's interesting because, again, the FBI agents that, that we in, in, uh, interviewed for the book, you know, they were basically hunting Bigfoot at, at about, you know, in the mid 2000s. And they were thinking, you know, we don't know who Whitey Bulger is. We never met John F. and Connolly. Yet every, you know, every case we are involved in, that gets thrown in our faces every day. So we're going to go out and find this bastard once and for all. And ultimately, that's what they do. All right. you I got a bone to pick with you. You call Whitey a Trump supporter, but don't provide any evidence. I'm not saying he wasn't. I'm just asking, where's the proof? Okay. Well, that was um, interviews that we had conducted with one of his uh, with his neighbors. And uh, one of his neighbors did tell us he was a Trump supporter. So we do have that on record. Dave uh, Wedge, uh, my very liberal uh, co-author. Um, right. A Trump hater. A Trump hater, let's yep. be honest. Conducted that, that interview. So I think he kind of slid that in there. Um, <laughs> so, you know, th- think of it what you will. You mentioned the unfinished uh, memoirs. Of, uh, of of Bulger are out there somewhere. Will we ever see them? I'm sure you, if I know you, you tried to get a hold of them and you probably we still did. And, and we think that a family member may have them right now. But again, what is it going to reveal? We feel like we're, we've already published uh, Bulger's memoirs because they're, you know, they're in 70 letters that, that he had written and Bulger always glorified his own actions, right. which is one of the reasons why he would not meet with Johnny Depp when Johnny Depp was making black masks. We've got uh, information in the book where Bulger is describing um, the, the filmmakers for Black Mass constantly reaching out to Jay Carney, his his attorney, trying to get a sit down. 
but the, the, the version of Bulger and Black Mass obviously was he is a rat. He is a government informant. And Bulger never wanted to see himself that way. He wanted to see himself as, you know, I wasn't getting in or giving information. I was getting information. Right. So if the manuscripts out there, it is going to be that Robin Hood bullshit story right. that, right. you know, he's been selling for decades. Hey, maybe Mike Barnacle could co-author the story when <laughs> he's still around. It, it is amazing when you go through the trial and you have some great detail about the trial and him swearing and his outbursts in court. But everybody in the end turns on him. I mean, sure. Fleming, Weeks, Monterano, everybody turns on him. He, in the end, the, the portrait, the depiction from Barnacle and the Globe and from others and from his family members like Billy, I mean, is such bullshit. He's, he's just the, he's a rat. He's an, he's an, you know, a, 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 just a terrible human being who treated everyone like dirt. And you could tell in the end that nobody, felt any sympathy. Nobody had any interest in protecting him at all. At all, besides his family. You know, and that's or, or as acceptable as well not as he is, but they're they're a bunch of rotten people anyway. But sure. But but uh, but I will say that uh that's one of the reasons why we wanted to write this book is because you know here's a gangster that doesn't get the opportunity to write off into the sunset or in his mind, you know, he was telling the FBI investigators on the long flight from uh L.A. to Boston that if he knew, knew he had a terminal disease, he was going to throw his body down a, uh, uh, a deserted mine shaft in Nevada just to keep that mystery going for as long as he possibly could. He didn't get that opportunity. He got beaten to death in prison. Everybody turned against him. And, he, you know, he, he got what he deserved at, ultimately. Do you think there's, I mean, two questions. Do you think we'll ever and they'll ever recover the 30 million or any of it? And do you think the story is over now? Do you think you guys have written the, the final chapter? Well, I think we're going to have to see what happens with the uh, investigation to the U.S. Bureau of per- Prisons. Uh, I think that'll happen before the money is ever recovered. But, you know, I mean, Dave and I will continue to kind of dig at the story and hopefully provide some updated information when the book comes out in the paperback. I don't think any of the money is going to be uh, recovered anytime soon. I think whoever knows where those safety deposit boxes are, they're going to sit on it for a while. And then when the coast is clear, maybe they'll uh, go try to find it. You know, other, I mean, than, other than Catherine Gregg, who could that be? Jackie Bulger? Who do you think has? A- I mean, I mean, I, you know, I'm only speculating here. It would have to be Jackie or Billy. Those yeah. are the only two that he really confided in. And, and I would he- say he confided in Billy more than he confided in his uh, brother, Shemp. Jackie and, and, and Billy, at least Jackie paid a price. At least he got busted at once. Yeah. Upon a time. Billy, Billy's going to go to his grave and he'll probably live forever. The, the people like him, people who are rotten to the core, like him seem to last a while. Um, well, we'll I, see, you know, his wife just passed away uh, about two weeks ago, Mary Bulger. So we'll, we'll see what happens to Billy next. Uh, but you know, he'll take those secrets to his grave. He's just like white. Why do you, that was an interesting, uh, anecdote that he wanted to throw his body down a mine shaft so no one would ever find him and we would all wonder you know is he still alive like would be wondering for decades if he's still alive i had a couple things before i let you go casey sherman i i want to read because i there's some funny parts of this book there's obviously some colorful characters but this i actually made a note the funniest part of the book here is um Here's Mike Barnacle in the Boston Globe. You'll be, you know, let's face it. I'm not going to pass on an opportunity to bash the Globe. And this was their lead columnist after 
Whitey scammed his way into a lottery jackpot. We're not sure how he did it. He threatened somebody. He got a hold of a winning lottery ticket. And uh, uh, Mike Bonacle writes, lay off Jimmy Bulger. <laughs> he calls him Jimmy. We know only family members and, you know, subordinates in the mob called him Jimmy, but not Barnacle Bar- Bar- has no shame. He says, for the first time in his life, Bulger got lucky legitimately and won the lottery. Knowing him, he probably already handed out money to St. Augustine's, figuring <laughs> that when he goes and the odds are better than winning Mass Williams, there will be some people left behind who will say, not a bad guy. Not a bad guy. He's not a bad guy. Can you believe that? You know, later, uh, Dan Kennedy, that fraud journalist, uh, uh, journalism professor from Northeastern. Right. Yeah, he, he called it satire. Oh, that was just uh, Mike Barnacle's, uh, you know, use of satire in the Bulger You're story. kidding. Oh, oh, yeah. Talk about two frauds. Uh, but that's that's what you got from the Boston Globe. That's one of the reasons why I think the – you know, the crime spree, the, the the reign of terror lasted as long as it did, obviously. The FBI was instrumental. His brother, Billy, protected him. We know all those stories, but so did the Globe. I mean, yeah, the, I mean, he, he had a great PR firm, which was the Boston Globe at the time. You know, Will McDonough, you know, another right. Globey who was close friends with Jimmy Bulger. So, you know, to them, he was James Cagney and Robin Hood wrapped up in the you know, together disgusting. When I think back, it's disgusting. I mean, I know people like you and me and you know, how we kind of were ahead of the curve on this, but there was a time when people in a mainstream newspaper in was were defending a guy who was ripping the teeth, killing young, how old was Deborah uh, Davis when she was 22. 22 year old woman kept killing her, ripping her teeth, torturing her, killing her, ripping her teeth out and burying her body in a shallow mm-hmm. grave. That guy was not a bad guy, yeah, according right. to the Boston Globe. That is disgusting. All right, before I let you, I, I, had, I had one other question just for my own. Uh, I'm wondering, I have a weird thing going on now where some days I can read, I could focus, and other days I can't take my eyes off the TV or the computer because, you know, let's be honest, the whole country's on fire right now. Right. We're in an apocalypse. And I was wondering, when you first sent me this book and told me about it, I said, I couldn't decide whether it was a really good time or a really bad time to put out a book <laughs> because people have time, but their minds are, you know, occupied with the, the you know, the downfall of Western civilization. I, I, my answer to that, and I'll get yours, would be the pandemic is one thing. I read during the pandemic, but when you combined it with the insurrection, it was hard for me to focus on, on anything other than the, you know, the, 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 the apocalypse. Well, you know, our publisher made a uh, calculated decision to release it during the pandemic, because that's what we thought. The only thing we thought we would be dealing with is people with a lot of time on their hands that, you know, were starving for content. And then the world gets turned upside down, uh, you know, by, I mean, every week it seems to be a a new sign of the apocalypse. So, you know, fortunately for us, uh, the book sales have been doing great, but the bookstores, you know, many of them aren't even still open yet. Right. So it's tough for us because we can't go in and sign books like we normally would at the Barnes and Nobles. They don't even have enough stock, um, you know, to for, for us to go in and, and make it worthwhile. So we just hope that people continue to, to find the book. And we're, we're going to turn the book into a limited series um, because we feel like there's enough information and storyline there to spread this story out over eight hours as opposed to 90 minutes in a black mass or uh, a departed, if you will. I think, again, it's just, I mean, if you think you know it all about Bulger and lots of people like, you know, around, at least around New England, think they do, 
you're wrong because you guys did a great job of, uh, of, of describing and telling the whole story of his demise, whether, it, you know, the capture, then the time in prison, then the trial. And the best part is the murder because you get to meet all kinds of new, uh, you know, wise guys. Well, well, one, one little funny moment in the book that I just remembered is uh, Bulger sends a letter to uh, Chip Janis, his uh, prison buddy. And he says, uh, Bulger says, say hello to all my friends for me. And Chip's like, <laughs> he has no friends. Yes. Say hello to say hello to who? Me? In the end, it is funny. This guy's got no friends and no family. You know, he's, yeah. he had one kid who died. You know, he had, uh, I guess he sort of had a girlfriend or, you know, he had another common-law wife, but um, they were probably more fearful of him than anything. Sure. And no real friends, the guys he spent his life with, turned on him. So, I mean, right. it, other than his dis- disgusting, loathsome family, he really had nobody, which is how you should, how it should work when you're pure evil like he was. Yeah, he, he died alone and he died in pain. Yes, and he yes, he died looking up at a guy who was bashing his skull in with a sock full of with a padlock lock yeah. inside it. Um but uh all right, before I let you go, I, I I'm always curious what you're gonna work on next because you guys come up with some good ideas and uh even if the story's been done before, you can take it to another level. Hey, homeowners, did you know that my brother-in-law, Greg, has a huge selection of precast concrete steps? Whether you're building a new home or you need to replace an old stash, he has great values with designs for any home available in concrete or customized with beautiful stone, granite, and brick. A new staircase can dramatically upgrade the front entrance of your home. In most cases, they can remove your old stairs and have you walking up your new front steps within hours. Shea provides lunch and learns. You get lunch and you get to learn from engineers and contractors at one of their plants or at their office. Shea manufactures a variety of precast concrete products. Make sure you contact them. Contact Greg, ask for Greg, for any of your precast concrete product needs. You can contact them at SheaConcrete.com. Before you answer me, I have a suggestion for you for your next book. It would be nonfiction. I promise you it would be a huge bestseller. It would be topical. And I would, uh, I for one would thoroughly enjoy it. Here's my suggestion. Unauthorized biography of Alan Dershowitz. Oh God, (laughs) I would love to. And you know, I've been going back and forth with that piece of shit. I know you have, Uh, uh, you know, and I wrote about him in the Herald and he rebutted me in the Herald. And I, oh yeah, trust me. He is, he is on the list. I would love to tear him down, you know, and, you know, he's tearing himself down every day, but um, you know, this guy is one of the most vile human beings in my opinion, that's ever walked the earth. I will give you credit because there's a reason not more people do not criticize him like you do. And you know, the reason he is the most litigious human being on earth. Hell, he just wrote a book defending himself against the charges from one of Jeffrey Epstein's harem. And I, you know, I, Dershowitz has claimed that he went to Epstein's, you know, mansion for a massage. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a house, a, a house that's full of pictures of naked young girls on the walls, and he just went there for, you know, a therapeutic massage. That story falls apart quickly. But I would say, Casey, you would have a lot of material. You'd probably be able to find a lot of people to interview, and. He would sue the hell out of you, uh, you know, no matter what. It could be all 100% right, but he would say, and, you know, if you're in the right, it would only help. I mean, the guy wouldn't be able to help himself. He would help you promote it. 
Sure. No, I, I don't care. And I think it's a brilliant idea. One that I, I've been giving a, a little thought to, just kind of needling him every opportunity and chance I get just because I like it. I even asked him, I said, when are you going to be on the vineyard? I'll, I'll meet you on the vineyard and just, you know, shout at you uh, in a crowded restaurant of all the lives you've destroyed, you know, during your lifetime. I got a better idea. I'm telling you, I'm going to be your agent on this project. You meet him on the vineyard at the nude beach that he hangs out. Oh, great. Yeah, exactly. I can't just picture Alan Dershowitz there with like a t-shirt, nothing else, just bottom, you know, from the waist down. Just that baking sun over his bald head. (laughs) Why did it, why do you hate him so? Well, just because, you know, I mean, especially with the Epstein case, you know, how many young lives did he just destroy? Um, and, And that's really what, 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 what tipped the iceberg for me. I always thought he was vile and a self-promoter and just a loathsome human being. But when you get underage girls involved and you look at them and, and your job is to tear them down. And I keep saying, how do you sleep at night, Alan? You know, if that's, if that's your goal in life, then you're not somebody that, uh, you know, deserves the title you have. And he's, and he's 80. I mean, like I said, sometimes the, the bad ones last forever. Yeah, <laughs> he's, sure. He's, he's 80 and he's still out there. He writes a book like every three weeks and he's uh, now he's, you know, on Trump's side. So he's getting more airtime, more FaceTime than ever because he's uh, fighting for, for Trump against all his old, you know, colleagues. Uh, he's kind of made a, a whole new uh, cottage. Well, he's got 300,000 Twitter followers and he's on Twitter all day and they just bash the hell out of him on Twitter. So I love reading the comments, you know, on my lunch break, just, to, you know, put a big smile on my face. I, what, uh, what are you see? I mean, uh, that's. <laughs> yeah, there he is. <laughs> yes. That's, uh, well, yes, Dave and I just finished, uh, we just finished a new book with James Patterson on John Lennon. So it's the last days of John Lennon's life, which will come out on the 40th anniversary of his assassination. And we interviewed Paul McCartney. We interviewed everybody around him. You know, and it's it's this really twisted story of not only Mark David Chapman, the killer, but John and Yoko at that time. So even people that, that don't like the Beatles, I'm a big Beatles fan, but I think people, you know, will get something from it because it's a really unusual tale. That sounds excellent. Do you bring in James Patterson just to sell books? I mean, he doesn't actually type anything, does he? Oh, no. Well, you know, we co-authored the book with James Patterson. And (laughs) that's, uh, you know, James is a great guy. I'm going to guess KC and Dave Wedge did most of the typing on that one. But I understand. By the way, James Patterson did a book about Epstein and left Clinton out of it completely. I don't know if you're aware of this. Left Clinton out of it off off scot-free. And then his next book was with Bill Clinton. So I have some questions for your new buzzy buddy, James <laughs> Patterson. By the way, big story. I shouldn't say a story today. One of those, you know, Twitter stories coming out. TMZ's got it. There's a movement now to change the national anthem along with everything else in our history, books and statues and the new national anthem they want. You know what it is? No. Imagine there's no country. <laughs> so they want to make Imagine the new national anthem, a song about, you know, getting rid of countries and borders. And, you know, Lenin wouldn't even like that. You know, I mean, <laughs> Lenin was a cynical bastard in many ways. And I, you know, getting to know him a little bit through the research of the book, I actually liked him more after the research than I did going into really? it. Yeah. He, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have liked that idea at all. You, uh, you said it's not coming out till the fall. I remember sitting watching Monday Night Football with my father when they announced when Howard Cosell announced the murder. So that was 
when November, December? That was that was uh, December eighth, uh, nineteen eighty. So our book comes out December seventh, and uh, we go we got an interview with the uh, ABC News producer, this guy named Alan Weiss, who who fed that information up to the booth where Howard Cosell eventually told the world that Lenin was. Uh, had been assassinated and this guy had just been involved in a motorcycle accident in Central Park and he's in the ER when John Lennon got wheeled in. We also oh, interviewed wow. the surgeon that was massaging John Lennon's heart trying to get a heartbeat but uh, ultimately Lennon died in his hands. And I know he lives with his like 100 year old mother but did you go and knock on Mark David Chapman's door? No, Mark David Chapman is he's still in prison and we we oh, made I he was getting I thought he was No, like, that's John Hinckley. Oh, I'm sorry. I get but, but, but there is a connection there. Mixed up. Yeah, John Hinckley was actually at the massive vigil in Central Park days after Lennon's murder, and oh, months he? later he no. uh, shot shot Reagan. Yeah. Wow. So Mark David Chapman's in prison. I'm sure it's easy time. He's not like in maximum security or anything. Did you? Uh, get he's caught? in he's in Wendy uh, upstate. Oh no, actually he's in upstate New York. We made several attempts. We wrote him, and he just wouldn't do it. And I think he's uh-huh. probably got you know, a deal with somebody to, you know, spill his beans again, um, you know, the, the, the week of, of the anniversary, but we go into Chapman and what a, what a freak show that guy was, but all, all the bells and whistles were there. He was firing off sirens, you know, for, for months and if not years about killing John Lennon and nobody took him seriously. Wow. That sounds excellent. Like I say, you guys come up with good ideas, some people come up with good ideas and they can't execute them. You guys come up with good ideas and you execute them. And this uh, certainly qualifies for that hunting whitey, the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. I would say you pulled it off, Casey. Congratulations. Uh, I really appreciate it, Jerry. Thank you so much. Excellent read. You don't need it, but I wish you luck. And I assume, uh, I assume you're uh, negotiating the movie rights with someone as we speak, correct? Well, we're looking at, you know, Brian Cranston, uh, Ed Harris, Woody Harrelson. I mean, you know. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're having some, some discussions right now as to who's going to play him in the, uh, in the, in the miniseries. Opposite Helen Marin as Catherine Gregg. Wow. Do you, get, do, you get, do you get a role? Do I get to see you and Dave Wedge? Uh, no, we're producing, the, we're producing it. We may be on set. We may be in the, you know, in, in the series in, in some uh, scene, but uh, I doubt it. Excellent. Well, good luck, Casey. Good job. I right, appreciate it, Jared. Thank you. Hunting Whitey, the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. I got to say, I, you know, I got the book and I was a little skeptical. I felt like I might read it and not learn a whole lot. Like I said, I've read everything. I mean, it's it's good. If you, if you don't know anything about Whitey, it's really good because you're going to learn a lot, but I was afraid I wouldn't learn anything. And I don't like reading books where I felt like I know everything. I've learned everything. I've read it all before. And I've read all Howie Carr's stuff. And uh, I read Black Mast by the Globe guys uh, and uh, saw the movie. And But these guys do a great job. I mean, there's new details throughout the book about, uh, you know, Whitey's life and, you know, his life of crime in Boston and all the murders and all the details. But then it, and then it really gets kind of revealing because you learn all about his life on the run with Catherine Gregg and where they went and who they met and how they managed to avoid uh, capture and detection. And then they settle in Santa Monica and they, you know, feed stray cats and which leads to their capture, by the way, feeding stray cats. I won't give it all away, uh, but they, uh, they get nabbed. Then they go through the trial 
and all the whitey's friends turn on him and uh, then he goes to prison and he's been he gets flown all over the country he's in Arizona he's in Florida he ends up in West Virginia at this place called Misery Mountain Hazleton West Virginia where they know everybody they, they say two people don't survive in Hazleton in Misery Mountain pedophiles and rats and there's a bunch of mobsters there doing hard times some of whom have no tolerance for rats including this guy, including this guy, Freddie Gius. Freddie Gius is a Springsfield mobster. Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge introduce you to him and his whole family. They t- spent a lot of time with his daughter. The guy's like a, a normal family guy, you know, for a while, but then he goes real bad and starts, uh, you know, uh, killing people for the mob. And he waits, uh, let's, let's Whitey settle in for 12 hours. He gets into this new prison. He's there for 12 hours, Hardly enough time to meet his roomie. His roommate takes a walk. Whitey's alone in his cell and on video, they can see Freddie and another guy, Big Polly, uh, go in there with their uh, socks filled with a padlock and a sock and just beat the hell out of Whitey. They don't rip his eyes out, but they do bash them in. And it's a just and fair and appropriate end to this guy's, what, 80 years of, of crime. 80, you know, 70 something years of ruining lives, of, of destroying families, of destroying Southie, of dealing drugs, of pedophilia and murder and rape and torture. And he's just the, the most contemptible human being ever. And he, and he, and he dies as he should in misery, in pain, in agony. It's good. I mean, it's too bad Billy Bulger and the rest of this, this Bulger clan has gotten away with so much over the years, but. Whitey didn't. Whitey did not go off into the sunset and live happily ever after, which is a good thing. But these guys do an excellent job of kind of doing that. Like I said, I compare it to, you know, you feel like you know everything about Lincoln or, or everything about you know JFK. And then you learn about the, you know, the, the plot to kill them. And, you know, there's a great book about John Wilkes Booth's time on the run called Manhunt. Excellent book, very suspenseful. Things you didn't know about John Wilkes Booth and how he got away for a while and how he was on the run. That's what this feels like. It feels like the last chapter. And I didn't know all the details about the last chapter. This is a, a, a whole story of how it all ended for Whitey. And it's, and it's a happy story in the end, a good story. But Hunting Whitey by Casey Sherman, Dave Wedge. Uh, thanks to Casey and uh, thanks to Colin Ain. Uh, This is a special edition, a bonus weekend edition of the Callahan Podcast. I'm Jerry Callahan, and I will talk to you again Monday morning. Why am I stopping? No one else stops. I don't. Can I go home? The Jerry Callahan Podcast. Give the gift of choice this season with multi-store cards at giftcards.com. With multi-store cards, treat them to dinner movies, or shopping on one convenient card. Featuring all your favorites like Macy's, Alta, and Lululemon. It's a great gift card everyone will love. For last-minute gifting, choose the Happy Holidays or Holiday Favorites e-gift, delivered straight to their inbox. Purchase multi-store cards today at www.giftcards.com multi-store. Give the gift of well-being with Spa Finder, the world's best-selling spa gift card And the perfect gift this holiday season. From family members and friends to those last-minute coworker or client gifts, SpaFinder gift cards are a convenient and thoughtful option you can't go wrong with.
The Spa Finder Network includes thousands of spas, salons, and fitness studios all over the U.S. with services like massages, blowouts, mani-pedis, even yoga. Or check out the Spa Finder Wellness Shop to buy skincare, beauty, and wellness apparel from the comfort of home. With Spa Finder, the possibilities are endless. Gift some me time to someone you love and pick one up for yourself along the way. Go to spafinder.com slash podcast 15 to save 15% off gift cards of $100 or more. Or enter the promo code podcast 15 at checkout. Before you drive the all-new Nissan Rogue, you gotta ask yourself, how rogue are you gonna go? We talking be one with nature in the desert rogue? Go snowshoeing in Alaska rogue? Or take the long way home just because kind of rogue? Just a question, but with five available drive modes, you're sure to find the answer. Go rogue in the all-new, fiercely reimagined 2021 Nissan Rogue. Now with the most standard safety features in its class. See owner's manual for important safety information. Auto Pacific segmentation. 2021 Nissan Rogue versus latest in market competitors. Base models compared.